Greetings, Minecrafters, and welcome to episode 15, Highway to Hell, where we will discuss the distorted cycle of thinking that often leads to depression. Ironically, you know, this can be a tough conversation to have. You know, so many people feel depressed along the spectrum of depression. Remember from previous episodes, we talk about you know, the spectrum thing a lot because rarely in life does anything happen just on one end or the other. You know, somebody can be a little sad all the way to, you know, at the other end where they're, you know, uh, crippled by it many times, unable to get to work, unable to get to class and walk across campus, or for younger kids, unable to get out of bed and get on the bus. And there's a whole middle, right? There's a whole middle because life is a spectrum. Interestingly, when I looked up what the APA or the American Psychiatric Association would say depression is or how they define it, they define it as depression, parentheses, major depressive order, is a common and serious medical illness that negatively affects how you feel, the way you think, and how you act. And this is interesting because if it were little old me here doing a podcast episode, I would change the words around and put think and feel and act because this is the order that they actually go. Our thoughts come first and our feelings come second, right? If we're not walking around thinking, you know, um, sad or dark thoughts, we're not as apt to feel sad. So think about this. This is what I say when I'm in, in class with my students when they look at me perplexed, you know, often because they've seen infomercials about you are what you eat, nutrition being very important. I'm not dismissing that. In reality, we are what we think. So I'll, I'll pick a, you know, a student that I know I can kind of have fun with and I'll say, okay, let's just say we, um, you know, carved open uh, Douglas's head with kindness and anesthesia, right? And removed his mind, what would Douglas be feeling? And the answer is nothing because we don't feel anything without the brain. Thoughts definitely come first and feelings come second. It doesn't mean that emotions don't play back into thoughts because they do, but the actual you know, feelings stem from cognition, obviously, even if it's unconscious, which is often why also why st- students look at me perplexed because, which is good. And I, t- I tell them afterwards, and I'm, you know, proud of them for this. The reason they get confused is they're aware of, you know, sort of automatic behaviors, automatic thoughts, you know, just, you know, you know, checking on a, you know, a locked door or something. And, but still, even if it's kind of an unconscious thought, it's still a thought without the brain, there are no feelings. That's it, kind of the end with that. So before we go one inch further, I want to make, you know, my kind of usual disclaimer that we, that I say when we are discussing kind of mental health issues is that these podcast episodes, which I'm so enjoying doing, I have to tell you, are meant to be, you know, psychoedish, psychoeducational, and in no way meant to take the place of professional treatment. Now, it's absolutely you know, uh, these absolutely could complement, you know, somebody, you know, seeking out professional help and some of the activities and things we talk about exercises can definitely also help, but these are meant to help more the, the, the people on the, you know, lower to, you know, middle end of the spectrum. If somebody's, you know, on the whole other end where they're unable to get up and out to work or school or something like that, strongly encourage, you to seek out medical medical treatment, professional treatment for this. And then 
these uh, this discussion, these exercises that we'll talk about will hopefully be able to help you. And I think most people are aware of the symptoms. Again, this is the APA. Somebody's feeling sad or having a depressed mood. So again, there's feeling sad, you know, sometimes, and then there's, you know, as this escalates where it's affecting affecting your life you know, um, in a way that's impairing it, obviously. And of course, we know about the loss of interest or pleasures. These can be anything, something, you know, all the things you're used to loving doing. Um, maybe it's, you know, some kind of hobby or sport, spending time with family, sex, eating, any of it, and losing interest or pleasure in these activities. Obviously, there's a change in appetite, and that can go either way, um, gaining weight or losing weight. And this is because the hormones, ghrelin and lectin, are affected. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get into um, the effects of sleep deprivation. And which is next here, the trouble sleeping or sleeping too much. And I think most of us are aware that certainly I saw it with my students with this pandemic. When I held their classes virtually on Zoom, a lot of them were literally the classes at two o'clock in the afternoon. And I usually had a handful of them that were, um, you know, typing in from from their beds, sitting there in bed two o'clock in the afternoon and talking about how it was you know, tough to get up and out the door. We have um, obviously loss of energy and to the point that it can actually be called, you know, fatigue. Like there's regular loss of energy, there's tired, there's even exhausted, and then there's fatigue, which is kind of, you know, chronically being tired, right? Um, An increase in purposeless physical activity. So sometimes that can mean uh, pacing. Um, Also movements can be slowed, such as speech, uh, and that these actions are often observed by other people, might be your friends or your family. I think most of us know that often we're talking about the black hole of depression, right? These feelings of just worthlessness. And that's where the shame piece comes in. We're going to get to that more as well, because shame can really play a role here. And also feeling guilty. This can be a secondary emotion. Again, something I talk with my students about a lot because of the stigmas that go along with feeling depressed. So Especially, you know, some of the stigmas where, you know, why can't why can't you, you know, handle this? Why and telling ourselves why can't we handle this? Or, you know, how come I'm weak or how, whatever? And feeling guilty for being depressed. So if it's not enough to feel depressed and all the darkness that goes along with that, now we feel guilty for feeling the way we feel, which just obviously kind of gloms on to the already um, unpleasant and often overwhelming feelings that accompany depression. And then, you know, with the thought process, thinking itself can become difficult. And you know, we've talked about this with the whole pandemic brain thing. Just thinking. It doesn't even have to be about thinking about anything huge or any big decision. It can be just regular, you know, planning, basic planning for, you know, making tacos that night. It just, it's, you know, being frustrated with ourselves. You know, why did I just go to the store and I came back with everything except what I went there for? And difficulty also making decision-making making decisions, problem solving, you know, concentrating in any way, um, being creative with projects, anything. It just all gets muddled up when the kind of secular distorted thinking of depression is, is in play. And then obviously on the extreme end, somebody can be very focused on death or suicide. And at least with the APA, they talk about these symptoms lasting at least two weeks 
And just a reminder again, this is not in any way meant for anyone to self-diagnose or to take the place of getting professional treatment. We're simply having a discussion of what depression is, sort of what it stems from, and then we'll talk about um, some ways, um, again, to manage this when it's when it's uh, on the lower and kind of middle end of that of that spectrum. You know, I should also clarify, just in case I'm being misconstrued here, which I I hope not. Anywhere along that spectrum is a good idea to seek professional help because it's it's good to get rolling with that. Because here's the thing: we all deserve to be happy and have a high you know, quality of, of existence. So even if, you know, you're kind of on the lower end wrestling with it, go, go, definitely. And, and, you know, we all, we all deserve to live our lives to the fullest and to kind of get out from underneath that kind of wet blanket, as we say, that depression can be. So, um, you know, some of the obvious risk, risk factors are the most obvious is genetics, right? This is the poker hand we're dealt. We're going to talk about how, we have to take that into consideration, um, and that means that, you know, largely this is not our fault. And at the same point, we still have a responsibility, you know, to kind of, you know, take care of ourselves, be good to you, right? We have a responsibility, even if it's harder, with that something extra to deal with. Um, so genetics, yes, obviously, if mom, dad, grandma, anybody in there, you know, struggle with depression or, you know, any another mood disorder, that the genes are there. It does not mean you're doomed and destined to have it. It obviously does increase the risk, just like anything else, just like with addiction. You know, I, I grew up with two alcoholic parents, so I have to be careful just knowing that that's there. Absolutely. Stress. And we talked about, you know, developing a, a positive stress mindset a few episodes ago, which can absolutely, you know, help with this. And it's important um, to know that we're going to touch on these, all these kind of like positive ways to manage it towards the end. Stress can really play a role in depression too. So if you put those two together, somebody's already predisposed to depression, then enter life, you know, the curveballs that happen and any loss, certainly any kind of loss, you know, loss in a relationship, you know, divorce, um, loss of, you know, moving loss of job, you know, loss of, uh, maybe something happens with your body and health and loss of what you used to be able to do. All of that can play a role. Then, of course, biochemistry. You know, serotonin is at play here, which is a, you know, kind of na- a natural mood stabilizer in the brain. Um, hormones. Uh, that ap- absolutely can can also affect, you know, how we're feeling. So in previous episodes, way back when we talked about embracing fear and moving forward, we talked about OCT, obsessive compulsive thinking, and we've talked about pandemic brain. And, you know, as far as the what's going on behind the curtain, as we say, this most of the time comes down to the limbic system, which remembers the emotional headquarters of the brain. And remember the fun facts with the amygdala, right? That the the one that the part of the brain that flips the switch on the fight or flight, right? Remember the party trick for that now. Those of you who have have become uh, listeners of Minecraft and Minecrafters, right? If we picture two uh, invisible, you know, laser beams, one running through each eye, front to back, and then one running through both ears, side to side, where those intersect are the amygdala, again, which is the the switch flipper on the fight or flight response. 
You know, it's interesting because, you know, I, I love talking about the brain and everything. I, as I kind of joke I could talk about neurons and brain activity all day and not have one bored minute. And at the same time, you know, I was having a, a chat with our middle daughter, who's 23, and about epi- these podcast episodes and everything. She said, Mom, you know what? I think people want content. They really want content. You know, when we have actual knowledge to back up the touchy-feely, it's just so much more solid. You know, I... I know when people explain things to me, you know, I'm thinking when I just, we just, I've been at the mechanic a lot this week. Okay. With our two of our vehicles and we have this great mechanic who explains things to me. Like I would actually have any idea what he's talking about, which I don't. So then when I kind of say, Oh, can you just repeat this? Can you explain that? When he explains it to me, I just feel something I have absolutely nothing about when I, any knowledge about when I leave there, he's talking about, you know, catalytic converters and things. And I'm thinking, wow, I just left there with some knowledge that's helping me fully get what's, you know, going on here. And I think, I think she's right. I think when we have, you know, that there's security in that and there's confidence in that. So we're talking about the brain here. We walk away with this knowledge that backs up why we're thinking this way. It really helps to realize that it's also a brain thing, um, which means it's not our fault. And that's huge right there because we walk around feeling like it is often and it is not. It's not a pass either, right? We say, well, as I like to say with my own ADHD, it's not an excuse, it's an explanation, okay? So that's what we're going to say with, with uh, depression as well. And so uh, the hippocampus, of course, is another part of the limbic system. And this is uh, the part of the limbic system that stores memories, specifically long-term memories. And it also helps to regulate the production of the hormone cortisol. So right now I'm looking at Healthline here. It says the body releases cortisol during times of physical and mental stress, including during times of depression. Problems can occur when excessive amounts of cortisol are sent to the brain during a stressful event or a chemical imbalance in the body. In a healthy brain, brain cells, we know those are neurons, are produced throughout a person's adult life in a part of the hippocampus called the dentate gyrus. So when people would have, they're struggling with major depression or major depressive disorder, you know I feel about that word. Disorder is a shame word. I think we should all, you know, do the world a favor and delete that right out of our vocabularies. But let's say major depressive thinking, um, long-term, long-term exposure to these increases in cortisol level, the stress hormone can really slow down the production of new neurons and actually kills them. You know, I told you in another episode or explained that I think of, you know, Sylvester Stallone with his Rambo, you know, automatic weapons, you know, and kills healthy neurons. And these, the neurons in the hippocampus actually begin to shrink. So this obviously isn't good for memory and causes uh, memory issues and sometimes memory loss. And this is one of the reasons that it's important to, to kind of take our own inventory and how we feel about stress in general and if you missed the podcast on you know, the importance of developing or having, developing and having a positive stress mindset, please go back and listen to that one if you, you know, struggle with, um, you know, depressed thoughts at times, because this is just ultra important. It's because stress has gotten such a bad rap. You know, people think about immediately, and it's because of the media and what people say, and it's just, they jump to this, oh, I've got all this stress, that means I'm going to have a heart attack or stroke and live a shorter life, and you know, all this stuff when not, not saying that's not true, right? If it's not, if it's chronic and untreated, unaddressed, or, you know, the thinking isn't shifted that 
those things are all certainly a higher risk. However, when we, when we change our thinking as much as we can, because there are certain situations where it wouldn't apply, the majority of the time we can, you know, take a look. Why I have this tight feeling in my chest. I'm feeling like this situation is hopeless no matter what I do, whatever. Think about what this stress is saying to us because stress actually has a job. Kind of like anger gets a bad rap. We need to really have a, you know, open our minds to a more broader perspective because stress has a job and it's a good job. Stress, in fact, I was just having a talk with my husband about this. Stress points us in the direction of what truly matters to us. Think about that. Stress points us towards, draws our attention to what's truly important to us, what matters to us. And once we kind of understand that, from there we can be- begin to change our perspective. And, you know, we often hear about the, the stress response, right? So we can also change our words because words are so important, you know, in life in general. We know how much words have power. So we say, I'm all stressed out, right? Instead of having that stress response stress response kind of dialogue, switch that over to one of a challenge response. Instead of I'm stressed by, you know, whatever, I'm challenged by whatever it is. And then instead of saying I'm stressed out, right, I'm stressed out about blah, 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 I'm excited for, I'm excited you know, about this new project that the boss just dumped in my lap after the last two I'm not even finished with. You know, realize I'm excited about this. I want to do well. I want people to like what I did. And maybe you want to maybe you want to impress. There's not a thing wrong with that. You want to, you know, do some bang up project and get noticed for it. Good for you. I'm excited about this rather than I'm stressed. In fact, Healthline goes on to say that um, many researchers believe high cortisol levels play the biggest role in changing the physical structure and chemical activities of the brain and triggering, sometimes can trigger the onset of major depression. And they say normally cortisol levels are highest in the morning and decrease at night. In people with major depression, however, cortisol levels are always elevated even at night. So again, once we have an awareness, right, of what's going on, the behind the curtain stuff with the brain activity, then we can take action. That's the beautiful thing because a lot of part, a lot, a lot of part, a lot of depression and anxiety, whatever we're talking about, also has this residual kind of bad feeling of, you know, I don't have control. And he's just thinking about, I don't have control. Well, the more awareness we develop, the more control we have, right? So now we are aware that Cortisol is like, you know, Rambo destroying neurons and leading to all these, you know, um, feelings of, you know, darkness and not being enough and all the things, hopelessness that goes on with depression. Once we have this, this awareness and then our cortisol levels don't taper off at night like neurotypicals do, it's then that we can take action and can actually test your cortisol levels, which is also a beautiful thing, just to find out where you're at with it. So we've, you know, kind of established it. It's definitely a good idea to keep track of one's cortisol levels because, again, it's cortisol, the stress hormone, is meant to, you know, save us, protect us, keep the species going. But it's very important to keep this in check. So um, before we get on to more ways to treat depression, and I don't plan to get into every single medication because there's a bunch of them out there. However, I think it's important to discuss um, the SSRIs and how they work just because they're so commonly used and so effective for many people. So the SSRIs, this stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. And I'm sure many of you out there have heard of these, maybe on these yourself, or 
you know, family member or friend on these, and it's because they're so commonly used. So some of the SSRIs would, would include Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Lexapro. So the serotonin levels tend to be lower in people who are experiencing depression, right? So the idea is to then, you know, raise these levels, and it's actually, to me, fascinating how, let's say, Prozac works, right? So what I picture, I'm big individuals, is picture a very simple way Picture two neurons looking like a baseball mitt. I'm a diehard Yankee fan, and you can't go that way right now since it's not happening. But let's picture um, a sea of 10-year-olds at Yankee Stadium. And um, let's go back to the old old days here. Um, with Bucky Dent, you know, back in the 70s, Reggie Jackson hitting baseballs out to this sea of 10-year-olds. The only thing is they already have a baseball in their glove. So picture that. So what happens to the baseball? that the Yankees are hitting out to these 10-year-olds when they already have a baseball in the glove? The answer is it can't get in there, right? It kind of, you know, bounce out. So while let's say the little baseball with the P on it, the Prozac is sitting in the baseball glove, which is the neuroreceptor, the little serotonins therefore can't get in. And so what happens is they kind of stay out to play longer in between the two uh, neuroreceptors. As the reuptake or, you know, the kind of, you know, sucking them back in the neuron they came from is prevented by the Prozac. So it's kind of how, let's say, Prozac works. So Prozac and, um, and the SSRIs are considered an agonist. So they're kind of masquerading like on Halloween, my personal favorite holiday. So it's kind of like the serotonin. Let's pretend like a circle with a little S on it. Can I do that in your mind's eye? And the Prozac circle with a little P on it, both baseballs, right, is masquerading as serotonin. And it does such a good job with its disguise or costume of looking like serotonin that it's, it's, it's received and accepted by the baseball glove. Another way I like to think about it is picture, you know, some adorable little cherub who's nine months old, right? That adorable age when you're trying to feed them chocolate pudding, right? And it gets all over their face. So often the person who's feeding them tries to kind of take a spoon and gently kind of kind of scoop it off the cheeks and move it back into the mouth, right? Well, in this case, the Prozac or Lexapro or whatever would prevent the pudding from being kind of brought back into the mouth. Leaving it all over that adorable little baby's face um, is a way of raising serotonin, raising the mood, raising serotonin levels. So the reason I'm addressing, you know, medication in this episode is because of the judgers out there, right? You know, oh, be natural, you know, don't, you don't need that. You weren't, you know, whatever, whatever brought into this world needing stuff. You might be, you know, type one diabetics are brought into this world needing insulin, right? There wouldn't be any discussion about whether they take insulin or not. And I do think it's important to, to you know, try all the, you know, you know, uh, more natural things first, like exercise and mindfulness some of the time or both or whatever, but it comes down to, you got to take care of you. You've got to do what's good for you. And if it's good for you, you know, to, to start, give an SSRI a try, well, then it's nobody else's business. So if you thought at that second that you were about to hear me say an expletive, it's probably because I was about to, because you know what? I, people judging just gets me so irritated. You know what I mean? They're coming from their own insecure place and, you know, kind of spewing their shame on other people. It gets, just gets me quite annoyed. But anyway, uh, yeah. So as far as, you know, they're saying things like, Oh, you're putting chemicals in your body. Well, isn't that easy for you to say? Is it hard for you to get up and out of bed to go to work 
or to go to school or, you know, are you the one who's like crazy in love with your partner, but you don't want to have sex right now, or you don't even want to go for a walk or even have, you know, a conversation at dinner. What about, you know, losing interest in, you know, being with your women friends or your guy friends or your whatever friends and, you know, just all these things you love and they just need to shut the hell up. And so much for holding back the expletive. A judgment just gets me nuts. Anyway, so as far as the chemicals thing, you know, yeah, I guess, you know, Tylenol chemicals too. But, you know, with with uh, the SSRIs, honestly, they're so commonly used. And the truth is, really what they're about is preventing, you know, the excess serotonin from being sucked back in, usually to the sending neuron, right? So really, it's what the body's already making. And it's just, these are just, the SSRIs are just trying to, kind of keep it out on the playground longer to be enjoyed and to kind of, you know, bring the mood and lift the mood a little bit. That's really it. So I'm just realizing at this moment that there's just so much to talk about. This is a big topic. And for those of you who are kind of hanging on to learn about the dysfunctional triangular thinking of depression, please stay with us because it's coming. Uh, the distorted thinking cycle is coming. Um, I just kind of want to stay on the train here with the body and, begin to discuss exercise. And I can just hear, you know, maybe some people are depressing. Oh, sure. Are you kidding me? I can't get out of bed. I can't get off the couch. I'm not, you know, wanting to see anyone I care about. And you want me to exercise, right? Yes, definitely. And no one said it was going to be easy. No one said it was going to be easy. But here's the thing. Exercise is a win-win all the way around. Um, not only not only does it help reduce the symptoms of depression, but it also enhances memory, there's so many things that exercise does, and it's cumulative. So once someone starts exercising, the body actually releases, you know, the feel-good endorphins, which is Greek for internal morphine. And again, cumulative. So like I, I like to run and ski, and it's important that you know you like to that you like to do whatever you choose to do. Um, but once you get into it, you know, it doesn't mean that you have extra energy and you know kind of a higher level of mood that one day. When you start to get into a habit of it. It, uh, it gets easier and easier for one, but the feel good thing, you know, begins to rise, you know, in general. Also people who are, you know, experienced depressed thoughts, not that it's not true for, um, you know, most, most of us too, with really benefit from routine and structure. You know, the last thing somebody who's experiencing depressed pattern of thinking needs is too much time in their hands. And, um, the exercise thing is good for the structure also, and also the sense of confidence that comes with accomplishing something, even if it's a seemingly small goal to other people. We don't care about what other people think, not at all. So, you know, if you woke yourself up and went on, you know, you're starting your new, you're shifting your habit and you're doing, you know, your first walk around the block, maybe you didn't go that far, took eight minutes, good for you. Good for you. And that sense of accomplishment is also, you know, part of what we mentioned along the way, too, with Marty Seligan, one of my faves, uh, father of positive psychology, right? Accomplishment is a key part of well-being. And that doesn't need to be measured up against any anybody or anything. It matters only that we're feeling good about our accomplishment. So, again, if you walk for eight minutes this morning – which is eight minutes more than you did yesterday or maybe for the last month or year of 10 years, then good for you. You've accomplished something. You know, obviously nutrition is important too. I'm not going to get too into that. I think we all know that. I mean, the big ones to stay away from are sugar and alcohol. 
right? Because sugar, when we I think of, you know, Halloween as a kid, you just like binge, you know, everybody knows there's a sugar crash. So if you're kind of already, if your mood is already crashing, it obviously makes not a lot of sense to indulge in, you know, a chemical that brings you down further. This doesn't make any sense. And alcohol, same thing. You know, it feels like that's a good idea at the time, but it is a depressant. I'll share with you, I mean, just got a huge story here, but I'm thinking of a student I had who was a first year at the time, and he was so courageous sharing with the class when we got on the topic of depression in, I think it was applied psychology. And he said, you know what, guys, it's really true. He said, I've struggled with depression, you know, for, you know, it was three or four years now. He's 18 at that time and worked at all these different things. And he said, I was actually doing better. And I got to college and obviously I'm meeting friends and trying to fit in and going to all these parties and everything. And he said, and I picked right back up with the, with the drinking that I was into before. And he said, you know, within a matter of, I don't think it was a whole week, a few days, he said his depression had plummeted so much worse. He was on the rise trying to get better. Just, he said, I, he dropped like a rock. And then he said, I made a conscious choice and hear me when I'm not making disclaimer here. I'm not saying it's that easy to give up drinking. That's not even the point of this story. Um, however, he made a conscious choice to drop it at least for a while. And he said within a matter of days, he started to pick his mood, started to elevate again. He said it was absolutely the alcohol, you know, that just was like a catalyst to suck him right back into that black hole. And though I certainly know that, it, you know, it's a tough sell when somebody's, you know, in that black hole to say, oh, sure, exercise. That's exactly what I want to do. Right. And drinking seems like, um, you know, a much easier way to cope. Um, making the effort, the conscious choice to take small steps, you know, to climb out of that and to, you know, kind of shift that out is a very good idea. If, uh, often bringing friends in it, because then there's like accountability. If you're meeting to do a morning walk, you know, you have three other people waiting for you. That can really help. That's also social. There's just nothing but benefit to happen from exercise. Okay. So, you know, now for the moment you've all been waiting for, you know, what the heck is going on? with my thinking. I feel like I'm in a fog and I can't see out. I don't even have my bearings. It's like being on the deep end of the ocean and that lighthouse that's supposed to kind of reel me in. Can't see the light, can't hear the horn, can't hear anything. I don't know which ends up. Or, or sometimes I um, I use the analogy of a diver, like a deep sea diver. I, you know, Obviously, if they dive too, too deeply, too, too quickly, they can get the bends, right? So nitrogen bubbles just... And then they, they were, they're taught to, when that is starting to happen, to blow bubbles because that's how you find out which way is up. So that the person who's having this depressed thinking is often so, you know, you know kind of in that dark hole that they literally don't know which way is up, in a sense. And just a reminder now that everything starts with thoughts. Remember about the removal of the brain, right, with, of course, kindness and anesthesia. And we put it on the shelf in formaldehyde. Without the brain... Nothing else is happening, obviously, right? But it's funny. That's very obvious. But people often don't, don't think of it that way. So for this distorted thinking triangular cycle of depression to kick into gear, something kind of has to trip our cord. Something has to start it up. Okay, so here's how it works. I'd like you to picture a triangle, just a, a triangle, okay? At the top, picture the word thoughts. To the right, on the base of the triangle, picture feelings or emotions. And to the left base of the tri- triangle, picture behaviors or actions if you want. Okay, so now um, the thoughts at the top, 
Think of an arrow going down to the feelings, right? Which then lead to across the bottom behaviors and then another arrow back up the top to thoughts. So let's say that you're in your local grocery store and you're in the produce department, you know, maybe squeezing the melons, make sure they're ripe, but not too squishy ripe, right? And, you know, a good friend of yours kind of walks by, just you kind of wave and they kind of look right through you as if you weren't there. And they, they jump over to the, to the deli, okay? And you're thinking, like, what the heck? You know, the, the first reaction might be, like, what's up with that? Are they mad at me? Did I say something I'm not aware of at the last social thing we were at? Do they just not like me? Is that all a charade when we're at a social thing and then they see me here and they don't talk to me? You know, and that then um, can lead to the feeling of, you know, maybe feeling insecure. Again, was it something I said? Did they really not like me? And they're just putting that show on for people out in the world or um, maybe even a little rejected if you know them pretty well. And like, what's going on with them? So this feeling then of feeling, you know, insecure and rejected can often lead to avoidant behavior, which is just, you know, withdrawing and keeping to myself. And, you know, so when we're in isolating mode, we might think, oh, this is really not a time to, well, if you're older, let's say season, you know, not a time for me to chime into Facebook because that'll just bring me down further or stay off the gram or Insta chat or whatever. I'm not going to do that. So since the phone's off, then uh, we wouldn't even know if somebody was trying to reach us or the computer for us seasoned folks. wouldn't even know um, what emails are sliding in. That's a very old thing to say, right, young ones? Um, you're not even aware of people trying to reach out. You know, this could then, this, this thinking of nobody's trying to reach out to me, nobody cares, feeling badly for myself, whatever, might then lead to another emotion or feeling of, you know, loneliness, maybe even resulting in anger, because then we go through an evaluation of like, hey, I'm a good person. I'm good to people. Why? How come they're leaving me out of stuff? And get and then you can get really pissed off. Okay, and then what often happens, right, is we experience a little bit of an anger hangover. You know, it felt good when we were in that place and, you know, all the distorted thinking going on and what everybody's not doing for us, what they said, what they didn't say, what I could have said, what should have said, what it could have, should have, whatever. But then even though when we're in that distorted, you know, wormhole or black hole, there's still part of us that has a logic base and knows that maybe I should have hit the pause button on that, you know, maybe sought higher ground and thought that through. But I didn't, so now here we are. So this this thought now, I maybe shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have said that, whatever, can often lead us to a place of guilt, right? And guilt has a job, which is preventing us from, you know, doing bad things to people, although it can be very unhealthy when it's not based on any kind of facts and or if it's, you know, chronic. It can also lead us to shame, which is different from guilt, right? Guilt is an action word that says, I made a mistake, whereas shame has the message of, I am the mistake, which is deep and much worse because it's the most toxic emotion out there on this earth. The feeling of being less than and defective and depression is really, really good. Depressed thinking is great and very efficient with embracing the toxic emotion of shame. And because shame is such an excruciatingly toxic emotion, we often need to get rid of it one way or the other. Sometimes we project it onto other people, and that's unconscious because it's a defense mechanism. So we're not even aware we're doing that most of the time. Another way to, to, to numb it out is to drink, smoke weed, shop, you know, whatever else, 
Um, but these self-destructive behaviors are trying to numb out this feeling that we kind of brought on from this distorted triangular thought process and cycle, vicious cycle of depressed thinking. So this triangular thinking cycle um, happens very, very quickly, very, very quickly. And like we've discussed in some episodes with, you know, being conditioned, which is just a, you know, fancy word for learned behavior um, and habit and unconscious behavior, right? Which we can become conscious of, but that's all like, that's all in the vault. It's all unconscious stuff going on. And we become, we can become very, very, very good at what we rehearse. And if we're rehearsing self-destructive, you know, distorted thinking, um, we can get very, very good at it and very quickly. So, of course, this cycle is the basic premise for, you know, the very popular um, form of talk therapy, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, right? The cognitive is the thinking, the behaving is the acting, obviously, and the feelings and emotions are in the middle. So it all starts with the thoughts. How we think directly, directly affects how we feel and then results in how we behave. So the idea with CBT is, you know, shifting out of a thought pattern that clearly isn't working for us will then lead to, you know, more positive feelings, which will then lead to more positive actions because more positive decision-making will happen. So let's go back to that example in the grocery store. You're in the produce department squeezing the lemons and, you know, kind of eyeing all the beautiful veggies that are in season right now. And, this friend, let's say from work or whatever, goes blowing right by you to jump up into the deli department and start asking for, you know, sliced honey roasted turkey. And, you know, you, you had waved at them, even gave them a little shout, something, and nothing happened. They looked right through you as if they were looking right through you to your nice pile of cucumbers and, and uh, green peppers or something, not even seeing you, okay? And right away... You jump to, ooh, was it something I said at the last social thing at work? Or, you know, or even, are they up for a promotion and I'm not? Are they, you know, blah, 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 blah. Or are they just not like me? Maybe they're putting on this charade at work, but they really don't like me, you know, behind it all. Okay, so now what we need to do to pull ourselves out of this distorted triangle of, you know, uh, depressed thinking is to start with the same triangle only blank, okay, and we're going to fact check. So kind of how we said earlier with the example of the of the scuba diver, we're going to kind of blow bubbles to see which ends up and how, you know, we blow them then we figure which ends up, then we follow that direction, right? This is the way out of the fog, out of the black hole. Okay, so let's have you make um, two columns. So on the left, you're going to have facts, actual the actual what happened stuff, okay? And on the right... We're going to kind of explore, you know, kind of any evidence that may go against these facts. Okay, so the first set of facts, we know that, you know, you were in the produce section squeezing the melons, looking for the, the ripe one, yet not too ripe. You waved. They turned towards you, right? Um, eye contact, not sure, kind of looked right through you, so we don't really know. We know for sure they didn't wave back, right? So right, right down on the left, under the facts. Did not wave back. Now, since they did not really make a face or say anything negative or even necessarily make eye contact, that was an unsure. It's kind of like a question mark. We, all we really have is that they didn't wave and maybe 
didn't respond verbally. That's it. On the right side with the evidence, you know, you're starting to think, okay. And now that you're thinking about it, it was kind of busy. Not packed, packed, but pretty busy. It was moving. It was after the working hour and, you know, people were stopping in to get their groceries. And there were a lot of people in there. As you also think back, you know, the deli, for being so busy, had maybe only one person in line. You know, who knows if it's possible. We don't know that your that your coworker might have been in a hurry, noticed that there was no line, jumped right in it, and by doing so didn't even see. We don't know. So just going to write down, grocery store busy, no line at the deli. One person, a short line at the deli. That's it. Busy, one person at the deli. It's also a good idea to write down the, the word, word or words headspace of the other person because you standing there squeezing the melons have no idea where they're coming from, where they're going to, what happened in their day. Absolutely none. They could have, you know, have a throbbing abscess tooth. You don't know. You don't know if they got news that day. You don't, you don't know anything. So whatever their headspace is should be there also. All right. So here's what's in our favor here. If there's any evidence against that first thought, then we're, we're going to say that it's not factual for right now. Not factual. So go right back to the beginning to further explore. So we go back to that first thought of, you know, my, my coworker, you know, just saw me and, and just brushed me off or, you know, underneath it all, doesn't really like me when they keep up the shred at work because they have to be professional. You know, as it seemed, we perceived that person to look right through us. You might think something like, you know, gee, that was just plain weird. That was just strange. And this thought of, you know, that just being weird or, you know, <clears throat> just strange can lead us to a feeling of, you know, being confused. Like, you know, what's up? I'm maybe even a little disappointed. So this feeling of being, you know, confused and a little disappointed, you know, kind of is what it is. It doesn't level us. You know, it's not this full-blown rejection it's just confused, maybe a little disappointed, so it does not level us. You know, so depending on how close we are with that coworker, we can maybe shoot them an email or something safer. You know, we could just, you know, a funny meme that's timely that anyone would like and see if we got a reaction, something like that. So it's this kind of fact-checking that, you know, pulls us out of this downward spiral and out and up and out of the black hole. And we do this by this fact-checking keeps our thought process in place and brings awareness to, you know, awareness of that we're going down the spiral. And once we have the awareness, that's the first step towards climbing out. This is obviously a rather benign example. Um, It's also made it easier to explain because this is, you know, sort of the basis or foundation of cognitive behavioral therapy. And, um, this really works. And as mentioned in the courses I teach, especially Minecraft, uh, it's about becoming the boss of your brain. And this takes commitment and effort just like anything else. We just sit back and think, you know, wait for the, you know, uh, depress- the anti-depression fair to wave a wand and have it all be fine. Well, that's not going to happen. We have to take active steps. And, you know, it's interesting. I have to explain this to my students, too that our happiness is our own responsibility. And then usually right away I get a little bit of very respectful backlash of, well, I have diagnosed anxiety. Well, I have diagnosed depression. I have diagnosed whatever. And it's not that there's an insensitivity to that. It's actually the opposite. We have to embrace that. 
And the thing is, even if for somebody with something extra to deal with, okay, like my own ADHD, that's that's been quite a ride. Let me tell you, it's also a gift, um, but it's been quite a ride. And the thing is, we still have the choice. It's just harder for us. And this has me thinking of a fantastic story from my youngest brother-in-law's graduation from NYIT years ago. And my youngest brother-in-law is almost entirely blind, which just should uh, be added to this story because it matters. He can see almost nothing. He's got a little bit of peripheral and that's it. And uh, it, this, this, had, this was the speaker at the graduation that I remember so many years later. My brother-in-law uh, is turning 50, actually, this August. And he was at that time 20. It was a two-year program. So the fact that I remember this so many years later will just tell you how impressive it is. So this program was an excellent college program. It was a mix of regular college courses, regular you know, academic courses, and also a lot of life skills stuff because in addition to my youngest brother-in-law being almost entirely blind, uh, he had some damage done. It's too much to get into here, obviously, when he was about two. So he was born neurotypical and fine, he could see. And then he got a wave of something, and uh, he was, in addition to his sight, he was left with also some um, very mild, very mild kind of co- cognitive challenges that, uh, you know, had him needing some extra extra support. So this program was full of young adults with various learning differences, and that's important here. So this man, one of their professors, got up to speak, and he self-disclosed right away about he had several learning differences himself. I don't remember those at this point. It could have been dyslexia. I don't remember. But the point is, this was also, you know, you know, 25, whatever years ago, right? 30, almost 30 years ago. So things were obviously much tougher for that professor, you know, as far as IEPs, if they even existed, right? And he could, you know, the support. So he explained how, how, you know, what a challenge in a positive way, but how he had to go around, 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 right? Through like loops in the air of how he ended up getting where he is with a, with a PhD. And he said, you know what? It was still my responsibility. And he said, picture a track meet. Most people can picture a track meet. And if you, even if you didn't run track, our kids did. So it's super, well, a couple of them. It's super easy for me to picture these, those big invitationals where, you know, that one, one team, their color is purple and gold. Another team, they're navy blue and white. And then the red and then the, you know, yellow. And there's just colors all over the place. Track uniforms. And he said, okay, so picture them all lining up. Everybody's in the in the in the same in the same uh, invitational race, and you've got you know you, your typical beasts that are up there. They'll end up in the front pack. You've usually got the majority are kind of in the middle, right? Just kind of you know decent athletes that are out to you know stay in shape and everything. And then you've got some that may linger in the back, or also maybe just in it to stay in shape. Some in it are just to be social. I, one of those kids was mine. Uh, just to be social, and then you've got also some kids with learning differences or maybe physical challenges that are, um, you know, doing their best and, and and running, but still maybe towards the end. And he said, okay, so here's the thing. When the race starts, everybody's waiting for the same gun to go off. Everybody's on the same team, running the same race, around the same track. And he said, picture, you know, a few of those kids, picture anxiety, depression, whatever it is, learning difference. Picture a few of those kids are wearing a 25-pound weight belt under their uniform. No one else can see it and no one else knows it's there but you. So you've got the beasts out in front, no weight belt. They're just going to run their hardest. This is picture for metaphorically neurotypicals, right? They're going to run their hardest. And then there's you up there with anxiety, depression, whatever else. And there's a weight belt that no one else can see. 
So you've got to work that much harder to run that race and cross that finish line. And you know that, maybe only you know that. And it is what it is. It's still our choice. And we have to work that much harder to to get to this, to cross that finish line, which for our metaphor is, you know, high quality well-being and happiness. It takes more effort. You know, so on our, our journey, you know, along this path of becoming Minecrafters, becoming the boss of our brain, you know, part of the main theme here is, first of all, and an conscious decision, because we can roll around, you know, living on automatic pilot, and that's not going to be, that's not going to probably turn out very well, that passive kind of living. But we, you know, being becoming the boss of our brain is about living deliberately, conscious choices, because here's the thing, we make decisions all day long. Again, right? My degree is cognitive psychology. I love this stuff. We make decisions all day. Some of them are active and some of them are passive. So if we just keep, let's say, procrastinating, putting things off, eventually the universe makes a decision for us through another person or, you know, whatever. The decisions get made whether we actively choose to make them or not. So obviously it's much better to, you know, take the reins, be in the driver's seat and make these, you know, even if they're micro decisions, they lead to macro decisions. Consciously make these decisions ourselves. You know, and this involves a commitment to taking charge of our mind. This back to the you know anest- the kindness anesthesia thing. The mind is is everything. Everything we are, what we think, and like we've been saying, another main theme for these episodes is what we practice. We inevitably get good at or rehearse. Whatever word works better for you. My theater kid loves to say rehearse. But we rehearse, we get good at. And that's being a negative Nelly. You're going to get really, really good at that, especially if you're an automatic pilot. Remember that the brain is wired for lazy. The brain wants to, you know, take the path of least resistance. So if the path of least resistance is catastrophizing and, you know, kind of self-deprecating, you know, ruminating on all the ways you're not enough and reliving all the stress of whatever happened and all that, that's not going to stop happening. Until there's a conscious choice, you know, like they say in the 12-step programs, you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. You get sick of listening to yourself. Also, how it works with anger. Usually, eventually, we let that stuff go because we just we get sick of hearing it ourselves. And so that's really what we're talking about is a conscious choice to live deliberately, you know, and suck the marrow out of life. And I'm also realizing that we're already way over 40-whatever minutes here, and I'm, not, I'm just getting started. I'm realizing <clears throat> I didn't even... I didn't realize how much there was to say about this since I'm in the moment myself. And there's a lot more to go here. I've, we've, and we have not even touched on the loneliness epidemic in the U.S. We have not even touched on um, the, uh, what's going on in college campuses. There's just so much more to say, not to mention more strategies here. So that means there's going to be a part two. So I think I'm going to go ahead and wind this baby up here. And <clears throat> that's it. This is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day. Mm-hmm.